So today, as we continue on in our Advent series of No Room, I, I, I want us to look at the thing that often pushes out love, the thing that sort of clutters up our lives and is sort of the antithesis to what we're trying to experience as we come into the Advent season. And, and that thing is pride. Love at its best is something that's selfless, it's undeserved, it's sacrificial, where pride, on the other hand, says we deserve things, that we've earned things, that for some reason we are entitled to something. And when it comes to love, we cannot have pride in that way because it robs the true depth of meaning. It robs what love is trying to be, which is selfless, undeserved, sacrificial. When we tell someone, well, I deserve it, it cuts away and it undermines at what is truly trying to be offered to us. Pride is one of those things in, that in my life I've struggled with from time to time and in certain seasons probably more than others. And I've noticed that when it creeps in, one of two things often happens. The first thing that happens is often that God chooses to humble me. And typically he does that or allows that to happen in not so gentle of a way because I'm a little bit boneheaded sometimes and sometimes I don't fully receive what God is trying to press into me. Or the second thing that I find that happens, and I think this one maybe happens a little bit more often, is that I find myself missing out on something because I'm in an unhealthy place. And it's when I realize that I'm robbing myself of what I'm supposed to receive, that I come to this place where I go, man, I, I got to change something. Or perhaps I've got to let something or someone change me. And so my hope today as we consider this idea of pride and how it can rob us of experiencing the love of God at Christmas time is that you can avoid some of the pain and embarrassment and some of the unhealth that I've faced at different times so that you can experience the fullness of what this season is meant to be, of who Jesus is and what he has to offer to you and to me. And so to consider this idea and this topic, we're going to look at two different stories, two different encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9 and put a finger there, and to chapter 19 as well, and put another finger there. We're going to start in chapter 9, but hold both chapter 9 and 19 together. As we come to these two places, we're going to Read the story of Matthew the tax collector, the guy who actually wrote the book that we're going to be reading today. And we're going to hear about how this man who was hated and broken received the love of Jesus and was incredibly better because of it. And we're going to contrast that with some people who were around him who let their religious pride get in the way of receiving the love of Christ. And then we're going to go to chapter 19, <clears throat> where we're going to read about Jesus' encounter with a rich young man who simply could not overcome his wealth and his ego to receive what he was needing and what, in fact, he was even looking for, but he just couldn't give up his pride. So let's start with the, this first encounter we read about Jesus with Matthew the tax collector and the Pharisees. And that's in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, so right there at the beginning, we're going to carry on to verse 13. There we read this. 
As Jesus went on from there, he's just healized the paralyzed man. He's traveling. As he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's book. And he looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus responds and said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. So here we enter into the middle of Jesus' story. And Jesus has just gone on this way, as I said, from healing a paralyzed man. And notice that here he's going to say, I've come to heal the sick, not the healthy. And we see that as he's walking from this scene, as, as he knows the encounters that he might face, he comes across this tax collecting booth where Matthew's set up. And he says, hey, Matthew, I want you to follow me. What's incredible to me in this is that Matthew decides to get up and leave. He walks out of his shop and continues on following with Jesus. Now, this is kind of an interesting story, and it's actually in all three of the synoptic gospels. And if we were to read Luke chapter 5 and Luke's account of this, we'd read that Matthew doesn't just get up and follow Jesus for a moment, and he doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to go check out this guy for the afternoon. I'm just going to close shop early. I'll be in tomorrow at 7 a.m. to catch up and make sure I finish all of the paperwork. No, it's not, Luke tells us that he left everything behind. And that's saying something. Because in Jesus' day, a tax collector would have been incredibly wealthy. They would have had a huge responsibility. And this all came because what would happen is someone like Matthew would have an opportunity to set up shop somewhere in town, typically near one of the crossroads or at one of the ports, and their job would be to take taxes on goods and services that were coming to be traded in. And as they would do that, they could put on special levies. The special levies could go to them. So this was a pretty good gig. It was a way for them to accumulate money on the goods and services. And so this became quite a lucrative life. It also became a very interesting sort of social dynamic because, much to our surprise, not really, people didn't really like these guys. It's not really a, a job you do for the popularity, you do it for the prosperity, right? You go about doing it for the money. And so they would have had this small, tight-knit group of people who sort of would have been pushed out by the religious leaders and, and most of the everyday people because of how they would have impacted their life. And so when Matthew decides to get up from his seat this day to follow Jesus, he leaves behind everything. He leaves behind a lucrative job position, which surely would have been filled, and someone's not just going to fill that job, and then if Matthew were to come back one day and say, hey, can I get my job back? They're not going to go, oh yeah, here's your seat. Please go continue to collect all the money while I clerk for you and don't get any of it. No, they're going to keep his job. When he steps out in this place, he's not necessarily going to make a whole lot more friends. He already has very few of them, but now he's going to go with what the Jewish people believe was the religious nut bar, and he's going to go follow him and give his life to the cause of Christ. Not really a winning scenario. 
So what do we see in the life of Matthew? He lays down all his pride. He lays down what he has pride in, all his money, his job, his wealth, this community. He lays down his pride in himself, of his social, the little social standing he has, of his network, of the people that are around him in his life. But what's interesting, as he leaves all those things behind, we don't see that it's a reluctant decision. We don't see Matthew go, well, Jesus, tell me what you can do for me. Like, could you just... Fill me in a little bit on all the deets, like what's the RSP package that comes with this? How much am I going to earn? Who are the people in your group? Like, give me a little bit more information. No, we see that Matthew decides to fully surrender himself, and he's so excited about it that he throws a party. He throws a huge party. We see that it was such a big party that it obviously overflows from out the inside of his home to the outside because as the Pharisees walk down the street, they see who's at the party. In those days, they would have lived and had these big courtyards where they would gather in community. And so Matthew says, hey, everybody, come meet Jesus, the guy I'm following. Come hear about his great life. And so who shows up at the party? His few friends. The people who aren't particularly liked by society, the tax collectors, and what the Pharisees called the sinners. Now, the Pharisees aren't calling them sinners because these are the people who sin and they don't. But these are the people who are rejected by society, who are dirty, who are gross, who we don't want anything to do with as good, upright Jewish people. But Matthew says, it doesn't matter who you are, you need to come on and get in and be part of this body. And so as the Pharisees walk on by, they have a little bit of a different reaction. They don't go, wow, Jesus is inviting us into a party. We get to experience the love of Jesus. They end up going, what's wrong with you guys? They pull Jesus' disciples aside and say, what is your teacher doing? Why on earth did he stop by Matthew's booth? Why is he sitting and being in cahoots with all these gross sinners and rejects of society? What is going on? Now, as this all takes place, Jesus overhears what's happening. I love what Jesus says. His response in verse 12 and 13, and he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but the sinner. The reason we celebrate love at Christmas time is because Christmas reminds us that love came down to earth to bring us spiritual healing. When we read this story, we're supposed to identify with the sick. We're supposed to recognize that we need Jesus. We're supposed to see ourselves a little bit in Matthew, of these people who have Their bumps and bruises, but are loved by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came at Christmas time to not just be a guy, not to just teach people, but to welcome us into relationship with him and to reconcile us to God. There's this beautiful moment that takes place in the story. Matthew was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And so when Jesus calls him, he recognizes that he can be forgiven of his sin. He recognizes that he can be welcomed in to a real relationship that will give him life, unlike everything else that's leading him to die. And so Matthew is drawn in. 
And we see the benefits of what happens. We see where it leads him. We see how it brings him to a life of flourishing and a life of relationship with Jesus that puts him on a massively different trajectory, which brings him to a place where ultimately he will die for his faith, but he will be raised again with Jesus Christ for eternity. He's moved from a place of sickness to a place of healing because he was willing to let go of all his pride. He could have said, Jesus, I got it all right. Let me do this the way I want to do it, and I'll figure out life. But he doesn't do that at all. That instead is what the Pharisees do. You know, the Pharisees come along, and they're the religious leaders, and they recognize that at times they do things that are wrong. They step outside of the law of Moses, which they're committed to, and so they make sacrifices. And they live their life in such a way that if they know there's a boundary, they draw one a little bit earlier so that they never cross outside of God's law. And so they themselves live this very religious life. And they believe that they've earned a life of favor. Well, God loves me because of what I do. God will receive me and give me good things because I've done the right words. They say, hey, Jesus, we're actually healthy. Pick up on the, the irony, the sarcasm, if you will, of Jesus. I love that Jesus was a little bit sarcastic. And here he says to them, those who are healthy don't need a doctor, of course. But I'm here for the sick. He's speaking to the irony of the Pharisee situation where they recognize that they regularly sin, which is why they live a life of sacrifice. They recognize that they're going to go outside the lines, so they draw and make up all sorts of extra rules than what God's given them, so they don't go outside the lines. What Jesus is saying is, you're all spiritually sick, and so I'm here for you. And as we, if we could have been, if we were a Hollywood movie, we could sort of zoom in through the scene, and we land inside this party where the real people who are experiencing Life and favor of God are the ones who are gathered around him. Around the one who came at Christmas time. And we see that from that place, life and hope and joy and peace in the midst of all circumstances comes to life. You got it. The Pharisees didn't. But to help us not fall into a common trap here, I want us to look at this second story. We could study this for a long time. We, we did a whole message on this last year. If you want to go back, you can go to either of these texts, and I preached on them last year. But, but I want us to, to consider how our pride might come on in. Because one of the traps that we face as we read the Bible is oftentimes we villainize certain people, particularly the Pharisees. And we don't like to be villains, do we? None of us want to be categorized that way. And so what we say is we say, hey, we're with him. We're with Jesus. We're, we're with the big guy. We're the disciples, of course, right? We got it all right. We don't make up extra rules. We don't see ourselves better as other people, right? No, we, 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 we fall into this trap, don't we? Where we try to be like, the, where we are like the Pharisees. But to help us a little bit with this, let's consider just sort of an ordinary guy. An ordinary guy who has the means to be able to work his way through life. 
In Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 22, we, we read this second encounter, which is sort of a, a flip of the script from what happens with Matthew, if you will. Because what we have is, in the story of Matthew, we have Jesus coming to him. In the story we're about to read, we have a man who comes to Jesus instead. In Matthew's story, we see uh, that Matthew lays down all his pride. But in the story of this next man, we see something more like with what happens with the Pharisees. Let's read 16 to 22. So Jesus is in the middle of this time. He's just spent time. We remember the cute Sunday school story. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, you got the flannel graph, Jesus on the rock with all the kids hanging around, right? Jesus has just done that. And then this guy comes on inside. And it says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, love your neighbor as yourself. He sums up the Ten Commandments. Well, all these things I've kept, the young man says. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will then have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So again, I want to bring this in because sometimes we, we can look at the disciples' stories and the stories of the Pharisees, and we can really often be drawn to the one side. But the reality is, for all of us, we go back and forth between those two stories. That's my story. As I say, there's times where I struggle with pride. There's times where it's really easy to be a Pharisee. There's times where it's really easy to draw the lines and put myself in the box because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel secure. It makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing in following Jesus. There's other times where I realize I'm a hopeless wreck and I blow it time and time again. And I realize my need for Jesus. And so we need to hold all these things in the gospel together because it helps us remind that we're human. We're lacking perfection. We're going to go back and forth between them. And so here we, we, we recognize, or we can hopefully recognize ourselves sort of in the story of the rich young man. We have this guy who comes up and He's kind of got his life together. He's got the money in the bank that he can sort of get himself through life. And he's, he's trying to do the right thing. And we see that, that, that there's this sort of momentum he's got fo- going forward, which, which seems good on the surface, but really is not going to lead him towards the life he's hoping to live. Sometimes when we focus on this story, and so many of us have heard this many times before, I think we can get hung up on sort of the wealth side of things. But I want you to hear the pride that comes with it. What's important to, to know is that when Jesus calls this young man to life, yes, he says, go and sell all your possessions, but really what he anchors it all with, what he's challenging this young man towards is this idea that he needs to come and follow me. What comes with this idea of follow me is the sense that we need to live our lives in such a way that we're like Matthew, where we're willing to count the cost of everything that we have to surrender, everything that stands in the way of us truly embracing 
Jesus. And that can be a whole lot of different things. But oftentimes, at the root of all those things in our life is this sense of pride. Notice when Jesus interacts with this man, the first thing the guy does is he sees Jesus and he goes, man, this guy's got the key to life. This guy's got not just the key to life in this world, but in the next. I, I want to come. And so what he says to Jesus is he says, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do? Jesus, tell me what good thing I need to do, and I'm going to go do it. I want a check mark on my list. I want to be able to kind of figure out exactly what it is that I can accomplish so I can figure out how to get it done. And so what actually happens is, G is this man puts his pride on the line, and he says, I think, I'm pretty confident that I can do whatever it takes. And so he carries this sense of pride towards the religious life, much like the Pharisees, and much like what we struggle with in our lives. If you don't associate with this right away, I want you to just ask yourself, do you ever make lists? Do you ever make lists of what it is that you need to do to get your life together? Have you ever made a list, maybe not on paper, but of what it looks like to be a good Christian or a good person? You know, maybe you've uh, written down on that mental list, well, I just have to be better than culture. You know, I got to be, as a Christian, I got to be more than the guy who lives down the street from me. I got to have a little bit more ethics in my workplace than that lady who sits in the cubicle next to me. Maybe you say, hey, I think being a good person or a good Christian comes with volunteering. And so I'm going to pick a cause, and that's going to be the right one, by the way. And I'm going to give my life to that. Some of us make this list about raising our kids. Well, I raised my kids right. <laughs> they didn't. I'm doing pretty good. Some of us say, hey, I'm gonna, a good Christian should attend church X number of Sundays a month. I've done it. Have you ever noticed when you make a list of what it means to live the good life, it's always something that you're already doing or you know you can achieve? You never make a list that's unachievable for what it means to be a good person. You never make a list that you can't live up to in life about what it means to follow God as you in your situation. You make a list which lines up with what you think and you draw your own lines. See where we're like the Pharisees? Have you ever noticed that pattern in our lives? Well, this are the, these are the things that reveal our pride. You know why they reveal our pride? Because we elevate ourselves in those moments to the place of God. God is the one who has designed the way things should be. God is the one who has decided how someone comes into his family. God is the one who has set the lines in play for in, being in play. And then we come along and we redraw them. We come along and say, well, I like these ones so, and I think I can do this, so this is my lane. And we ignore all the rest. We come to God, even sometimes even more arrogantly, and we say, God, just tell me what I should do, and I'm going to go do it. I'm going to earn your love. I'm going to 
earn the things that you should do. I remember a lot of times growing up, uh, I would pray to God and barter with him. Anyone ever done this? And you're like, God, if you just do this thing, I'll do whatever you ask of me. I'll pray every day. I'll read my Bible. I'll go to church. I'll give. Whatever it is, right? And we, we, we go, God, you and me, tell me the good thing and then give me the gift. That's pride. That's not receiving the love of God. And look at what Jesus' response is to, to us, but through the extension of this man. In verse 17, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the entirety of the commandments. I love what Jesus does in response to this man. He hears the question. It's not that he misses it. He hears the question of the man who's bartering with God, tell me what to do and then give me what I deserve. And instead he says, why are you even on that track of questioning? Because who, what really is good? The question is, who is good? Now, Jesus is clearly speaking about God in this moment. And we know that Jesus is God. He's God who's come from heaven down to earth to live in the flesh, to lead us into relationship with him. And But what he asks this question is about, why are you asking, what do I do, when you should ask the question, who do I go to? There's a difference here. The problem, though, is oftentimes we don't realize the question because we're so stuck in our pride. We're so stuck, blinded by the way we think we ought to do things. We're so blind in the sense that we feel entitled to draw our own lines that we actually miss seeing right through those things. And we miss experiencing the fullness of what God came to do. In the words of Paul, he sums up Jesus in Romans chapter 3. He says this, There is no one righteous. There's no one right with God. There's no one who's done good enough. Not even one. There is no one who even understands this. Because there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. There's this truth spoken by the Apostle Paul trying to get people to understand. There's nothing you can do. From birth, you've already screwed it up. On your own, you'll never put the puzzle together. You're never going to have the stature or the wealth or the good moral compass which will be able to lead you to living perfectly in line with what God has designed. Sin's entered the world. It's taken part of your life. And because of that, you've already failed before you ever even knew it. The man didn't get it. The Pharisees didn't get it. And so this is where Jesus comes in. He says, you can't do it on your own. No list you make, no qualification you set, no gift you give, no number of Sundays you attend, no matter how much you volunteer, no matter what you think you've done, you're worthless on your own. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he comes in 
after that and speaks truth to us. But first we see a warning. The warning that, uh, that is lived out in the life of this rich young man. In verse 22, what happens is that the man heard Jesus. There's nothing you can do. You can't even give a donation. I, I love what Jesus did here, right? Just before this, in verse 20 and, and, and 21, we, we see the rich man, tell me what I can do. And Jesus says, okay, go, go sell everything you have and give it away. I think the reason Jesus did that isn't to tell all of us who would follow him, hey, sell everything you have and live in poverty on the street because that's what it looks like to live a good life. No, what he did is he said, I don't want you to just think you can make a donation. Don't just write a check to Jesus and his disciples and sign it because that makes you good. No, you have to be wholeheartedly surrendered. You can't think anything that you can give on your own will take you there. What you have to do is recognize your brokenness and your hopelessness on your own. But sadly, the young man didn't listen. And so in verse 22, we see that he walked away because of his great wealth. And I think with that great wealth came his great pride. And the irony of this moment, I think the irony of this moment is that he didn't do the one thing he could have done, the one thing he felt that he was experiencing, was that if he had just dropped to his knees, if he had just come to Jesus and said, help me please, I can't do it then. Jesus, you've set the bar too high. Help me. Rescue me, save me, be there for me. I think if he had said any of those words, all that pride would have been broken. All that he would have held on to would have seemed worthless as he experienced the love of Jesus Christ. But his pride, his pride got in the way. This is the thing that we saw with the Pharisees where their pride didn't let them come into the party. Their pride didn't let them enter into the presence of Jesus. We see this all throughout scriptures. We're told in the Old Testament that one of the things that God despises most is pride. He is distaste for it. He wants to spit pride out of his mouth because the reality is when we define what it looks like to follow God, when we think we can do it on our own, we've actually raised ourselves up to the level of God and said, I think I'm worth it. The irony, though, is Jesus says, on your own, left to your own devices, you're worthless. But I actually still think you're worth it. I actually think you are of such great value that if you would just surrender your worthless pride, you would experience everything that I have to offer. And that's the story of what we're building towards at Christmas time. Christmas is just the beginning of the story. But it's this beautiful moment that we celebrate where God came down from heaven to earth to say, though you are my enemies, though you have pride, though you've gone against me, 
I love you. And I'm going to deem you as worth it. I'm going to love you so immensely that I will give up my pride and die in a brutal, awful way, humiliated in front of everyone I know and the world that will be to come as God in my love for you. And so Jesus took on a pain he should have never had to bear on his own because he is perfect. He's holy. He's set apart. He's worthy of our worship. Yet instead, he chose to sacrifice himself. He chose to humble himself, to come for what we celebrate as our first Christmas time. And then he lived the life, showing the way, calling you and me and all the people who we read about here and saying, if you would just follow me and lay down your pride, I will give you hope and joy and love and peace and I will bring you in to eternal life. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. No one, no one in any of their pride can come to the Father except if you come humbly through me. That's why when we studied Acts, we we read that Luke wrote down what was said. It said, salvation is found in no one else for there is no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved except for the name of Jesus. If you're here today and you think you've got your life together because of you, you're going to miss the Christmas story. You're going to miss the joy that we receive when we're filled with the love of Jesus Christ. You're going to miss out on eternal life that comes after death because of your pride. You might not think you're a very proud person, but I promise you that if you've written that list, you've got it within you. If you've drawn some lines... You've got it within you. If you felt that you could pay a price, you've got it within you. And you've got to surrender it. You've got to hear the fact that Jesus said, I want to give you my love as a gift, which means you cannot deserve it. You cannot earn it. You're not entitled to it. But I think you're worth it. So let's celebrate the fact that Jesus came not just to live, but to die. And it all came true because of Christmas time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am just so thankful that you love us. God, I'm actually thankful that you coming to earth wasn't about turning trash into treasure, even though it feels like that. But it was in the fact of recovering the value within us that we've covered up with all of our pride. God, that's the trash that we've wrapped around our lives. And God, I thank you that you saw through it because you spoke that truth into our lives. That we are people who are loved by you even when we were your enemy. Even when we've sinned and gone against you. Even when we've had pride and thought we could uh, just do life our way. God, I thank you that you have spoken by coming down to earth to start as a little baby, to live a full life of teaching and challenging and encouraging and giving hope and laughing and, and, and making jokes, but then ultimately that you would die on the cross, a shame-filled death, so that we would not have the shame that we deserve, that we would not have the separation from you after we leave this earth, 
but instead that we could be reconciled with you now, that eternal life with you can start now, so that even though we will die physical death, we will rise again, that we will experience that, that physical, that mental, that spiritual resurrection with you, that we will come into your presence in heaven, and Lord God, that we will fill feel for the first time the fullness of the love that you have for us. God, I pray for anyone here who's struggling with, with making the list. God, it's easy, and it's easy to fall back to, but God, I just pray that you would help us to set those things aside this Christmas time. Would you help us to just receive that even we, as grown adults who have our lives pretty well together in many ways, that we still needed a baby to come that we still needed you and your vulnerable state to come so that you could die in another vulnerable state. Jesus, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. God, I just pray that we would embrace all that you would say to us and about us. Lord God, we thank you for your good grace, for what you offer to us. We thank you for your love and we receive it. And we just embrace it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.